Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, or in the Gospel of Luke, I should say, and this week we come to the very end of Luke chapter 3 and Jesus' baptism, and even though our text is only uh, two short verses, there's a lot here, uh, a lot here. In fact, we're assuming all of chapter 3, but in a certain sense, we're assuming all of the Old Testament. Uh, So Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 20. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to meditate on your word. And we know from the testimony of Paul, among others, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction. And as we dig in with this passage, we can see how you have been working all things out for your glory and our good, for the redemption of the world from the very beginning. I pray, Lord, that I would be clear about that and that I would get out of the way of your spirit being at work amongst us that we might see that you are sovereign and good that you have us that you are with us you will never let us go that you know how the end is and you are bringing it about lord we thank you for our lord jesus christ it's in his name that we pray amen well the baptism that john administered in the jordan in the earlier part of chapter three and we looked at that last week it anticipates the baptism Jesus would institute, but at the same time, even though it anticipates it, it's clearly different from it, too. And as I mentioned last week, John's baptism really is most akin to some of the water purification rites required of of priests in the service at the tabernacle or the temple in which they would wash their their hands or sometimes their whole person uh, before ministering at the altar. And it Again, it was not a hygiene issue so much as a ritual that symbolically removed uncleanness. And in turn, these rituals, they were self-administered, as in the priests washed their own hands or they washed themselves. So what makes John's baptism different from the baptism that Jesus instituted is that it's not an initiation rite. John's baptism was for people already in covenant with God, whereas Jesus' baptism replaces circumcision, which itself was a rite and a physical mark that set people apart and their children uh, as belonging to God. And John's baptism doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. And what's more, John's baptism was only administered by John. And it, it, it ceased with his arrest and his imprisonment and then his beheading. So Jesus's baptism was instituted with his ascension into heaven and has been repeated throughout every generation since that time, again, for believers and their children. So whereas John alone performed his baptism in this very specific historical moment leading up to the arrival of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' baptism has continued unabated since Pentecost. Now, as an aside, when you witness a person being baptized, it is not the pastor who actually baptizes. I know physically it is me, for example, baptizing. But the way 
Scripture talks about it, is that it's actually God through his son working in the power of the Spirit in that moment that is doing the baptism. That's why it's not my baptism. It's Jesus' baptism. So like how God worked through Moses in Egypt or through David with Goliath, it is God who does the work through his servants. That's also why we do not think the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial where we eat and drink in remembrance of God and he's nowhere to be found. No, God works through his Son and the power of the Spirit in these sacraments just like he does with prayer and his, the reading and preaching of Scripture, of His Word. It's why the Lord's Supper is not called memoriam, right, in memory. It's called communion because we commune with God in that meal together with Him. Well, John's baptism did not offer the forgiveness of sins, but rather looked forward to the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But it's worth asking, Okay, so why then did, did John call Israel to repent, or more accurately, repent exactly from what sin? Well, we talked about this last week, but it's, it's worth repeating. What we see with the Pharisees and scribes is the pursuit of social capital within Judaism. So it's not so much that folks like the Pharisees uh, believe they could earn their way to heaven, though there are probably some that, that thought that. It's more so that they, they thought their standing within the community, the Jewish community at large, proved their worth and value, in particular to other Jewish people. So in other words, like what Paul points out about his own life before Christ in Philippians 3, where he just does a listing of all the things he had socially. Uh, these, these, these Jewish people were using God in essentially their Jewish culture in order to achieve status in the eyes of other Jews. It's why Luke points out that tax collectors and Roman soldiers responded to John's preaching. Those were the people who had the lowest, if any, social capital within Jewish culture, whereas the self-anointed leaders of God's people refused to repent and were no better than a brood of vipers. That is, they were really the children of the serpent of Genesis 3, not Abraham. And though they had an appearance, appearance of godliness, which they certainly did, we would have thought they were good people, their hearts were far from God. And in essence, by, by using the temple or, or Jewish law or Judaism or you know, Jewish rituals, whatever it may be, they were using God and the things of God as a way to justify themselves or really to make themselves look good in the eyes of other people. Now, as an aside, it's obvious, it's obvious that all God's people struggle with breaking the first commandment, as in have no other gods, and in turn, you break the first one, you're going to break all other nine commandments too, often pretty much all at the same time as possible. But the way we often break the first commandment is by way of the second commandment. That is, we make God into our image or attempt to use him or control him for our own ends. And as we'll talk about tonight, this is the sin that plagued the northern kingdom of Israel after the united monarchy under David split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And I would say it plagues them all the way to this moment that we find in, in 
uh, the book of Luke. And the man who became king of northern Israel, a guy by the name of Jeroboam, knew that it was only a matter of time before his people started making pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem in the south to worship the true God, which is where it was God's appointed place and his appointed time. And in turn, their hearts would be turned back to David's lineage. And at that time, David's lineage was a guy by the name of Rehoboam in Judah. And that they would, in turn, they'd rebel against Jeroboam in the north and then kill him. That was his fear. And that's a good fear to have because that probably what is what would have happened. So what he does is he sets up rival worship centers throughout the north, complete with rival feasts. And in turn, he made two golden calves, like what we see at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was receiving the law. And he set them up at Shechem, the place where Abraham, after receiving the promise that God would bless the world through him, set up a center of worship for God in Genesis 12. So he's saying, look, I'm just like Abraham. Look what I'm doing. This is, this is a, a right place. Abraham was here. I'm doing the same thing. And Jeroboam said, and this is basically a paraphrase, he says, you don't need, this is to his people, you don't need to go up to Jerusalem anymore. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, this is exactly what happened at Sinai. And that's the second commandment. That's making the God of Israel into an image that resonates with us. Now, that doesn't resonate with us at all. But to them, to have two calves or two bulls, that's an image of power. And he's saying, look at how strong our God is. And this sin would dog every generation, sometimes more, sometimes less, until Israel was conquered by Assyria and deported from the land. The breaking of the second commandment is not an outright denial of Yahweh as God, but rather making him into an image that suited them, denying his right to be worshiped as he saw fit and on his terms, and in turn, trying to make use of him for their own ends. And in the case of Jeroboam, he did this in order to keep hold of his power, and, and it led eventually to his death, the wiping out of his lineage and the eventual loss of the land for the northern kingdom. He led his people astray for hundreds of years with this. And this same issue was alive and well in Jesus' day too, as evidenced by how the Jewish leadership treated their heritage and the temple itself as a means for their wealth and power. And if you wonder why Jesus went and overturned the tables in the temple, this is why. And in turn, it's, you know, it's evidenced by their rejection of both the prophet God sent to them, John the Baptist, but more so God's son that he sent to them, Jesus. And of course, this led, like what you see with the northern kingdom of Israel, to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, even as the gospel went out to the world. So in our own day, this same sin is alive and well. The Ten Commandments are still very much applicable to our life with God now. Lots of Christians think and act as if they can worship God whenever and however they feel like it. This is why God's pattern of six days and a Sabbath worship and rest is taken so lightly among us. 
And though this idea, uh, and though the idea that people uh, use God to get social capital, it, it's waning in places like, like Butler County. Still, you can find people who use Christianity as a means for gaining some kind of social standing through things like occasional church attendance or Christian paraphernalia, like maybe jewelry or t-shirts or sweat, whatever, or knowing the right jargon you have to say in particular moments or whatever. You can all think of examples of how this works. Well, if John's baptism was a call for the covenant people to repent in preparation for the coming of the, of the Messiah, why did Jesus come to be baptized by John? Well, in Matthew's account, John initially refused to baptize uh, Jesus and instead wanted to be baptized by Jesus, which is, of course, exactly what he should want. But Jesus insisted, said, no, 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 let us fulfill all righteousness. And the reason I think Jesus does this is that though he is without sin and in no need to repent, like Moses or Daniel, Jesus chose to be in solidarity with his people. So the righteous one of Israel joined with his people in order to lead them back to God. And it's similar to how Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, prays for his people, confessing their sin as if he committed it, despite not being at fault whatsoever. Or how Moses interceded for his people on Sinai, despite not being guilty of the golden calves. Jesus, you see, so loved Israel that he chose to be counted among them in John's baptism. Even so, as if you were paying attention to the text, there's far more to this moment than even that, and that's big. Well, we read that after Jesus had been baptized, and in Matthew's account, he had come up from the water, symbolically having crossed the Jordan onto dry ground like Israel coming into the promised land. That's book of Joshua language. While he was praying, the heavens were opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, or as it says in our text, in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's a very short sentence and it's huge. There is so much going on in that moment. So, like how Israel could see the glory cloud of God on top of Mount Sinai and could hear his thunderous voice, so here, the heavenly throne room opens up and pronounces God's approval of his son. And remember, too, from, from last week, that this, this baptism, like, like John's other baptism, happened in the Jordan River, the place where the second generation to come out of Egypt in the Exodus crossed into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. And remember, Jesus' name in, in Hebrew is Joshua, right? Yahshua. And so Jesus, the new Joshua, has crossed the Jordan in a baptism similar to those ancient Israelites who were baptized in that Jordan River crossing. But he's not come back to take the promised land, as so many hoped that the Messiah would do at this time, fully restoring the promised land to Israel, kicking out Roman rule, uh, which is exactly what Barabbas, by the way, was trying to make happen. No, Jesus' goals, his fight, so much bigger, so much bigger. 
He wasn't after the promised land, but the whole world, and was in turn bringing new creation with him. And the details about the spirit and the dove are key to understanding this. So the first place we read about the spirit in the Bible, believe it or not, is the second verse of the Bible. That's Genesis 1-2, with the spirit hovering much like a bird over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was active in the creation of the world. And if we take John's gospel seriously, and I think we should, God created all things through the Son, the Word of God, and the power of the Spirit. That's how you should read Genesis 1. And Paul makes the same point in Colossians chapter 1. Now fast forward in the text of Genesis to Genesis 8. And this guy named Noah. The flood... As you know, that story is both judgment and purification. It's judgment on humanity's wicked, perpetual violence and rebellion against God, and it's purification of the creation. It's washing it clean. And the flood, you see, is also a new creation story. This is how it works with God. God does not scrap everything he has made and throw it away. He doesn't work like that. Rather, he, in that story anyway, he decreates for a time, putting creation back to the state we see in Genesis 1 with water over the face of the earth, judging and washing what he had made, and then recreates the world, separating the seas from the dry uh, land, and, and essentially, again, like what we see in Genesis 1, and putting humanity then back into the world, like what you see happening on day six. And I, I'm not going to belabor this, but, but the ark itself is structured in three levels like a house. It's not described like a boat. It's just not. It's described like a house. And it represents the heavens, the earth, and the seas under the earth. And the animals that Noah was commanded to put into the ark corresponds to those arenas, just like Genesis 1. That's all purposeful. So Noah, as a kind of new Adam, is put on top of Mount Ararat, a place where ancient commentators thought was the site of the original Eden. And God then makes a covenant with Noah and all of creation. Noah worships through sacrifice. He plants a vineyard, sounds just like the garden, and receives the command that Adam received to have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah, as a new Adam, is reestablished with dominion over God's creation, including the animals, with the added responsibility that you don't see with Adam, the added responsibility to execute capital punishment on murder. So in a sense, the old order with Adam has become obsolete and a new order with Noah has come. So new creation never means brand spanking new. So if you hear Christians talking about God's gotta scrap this whole thing and burn it all up and start again, they have not read the Old Testament, let alone the New. Or if they have, they misunderstood it. He never means brand spanking new, as if God totally scraps everything. If he did, that means Satan won. Right? That means Satan got what he was after. No, it always means redeemed or restored or resurrected. So even as the world of Noah is the same world of Genesis 1 and 2, there's something new to it. And you can see this same new creation pattern repeated throughout the Old Testament with Abraham 
and Moses and David and Daniel leading all the way to the ultimate new creation in Jesus. Okay, you still tracking with me? Now, the dove. The dove is a clean animal, an appropriate animal for sacrifices, in fact, that returns to Noah with an olive branch in its beak. And I think the moment uh, with Noah, this moment with Noah anticipates our moment today with Jesus. So most people recognize that the olive branch is a symbol for peace, right? Which is a, uh, a symbol still used today. In fact, you know, you're offering them the olive branch. It means you're offering them peace. In fact, politicians are often referred to as either hawks or doves. You know, those for war, those for peace. That comes right from this text. But the peace that is in view here is the peace between God and his creation, in particular with humanity. And that peace came through divine judgment on humanity's sin, of which Noah and his family were spared through the ark. And this anticipates what we see both with Abraham, I will bless you and your offspring, and the Passover, where God's judgment passed over Israel. Now, the olive and the olive tree is not a random detail. It's not. No, the olive tree is associated with the tabernacle, particularly with the holy place and the holy of holies. So, for example, the oil used for the lampstand in the most holy place, olive oil. In Solomon's temple, the great cherubim of the holy of holies representing the guardians of God's throne room. And remember, you can see those cherubim standing at the gates of the Garden of Eden, keeping humanity out in their sin. And in turn, you see them again on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. You can see them in Isaiah 6. They're, they're described as seraphim there, the great burning ones. Well, in Solomon's temple, the great cherubim were made out of olive wood and were roughly 15 feet tall. The olive tree then, and you see this because God commands these details in Exodus about the tabernacle, the olive tree, then, is connected with the Holy of Holies, God's throne room, and in turn, his presence. And when Noah receives the olive branch from the dove, it is an indication that he has been restored to communion with God, the Spirit descending from heaven and hovering over the face of the flood. And soon enough, he's on the land, he plants a vineyard, and he worships God. Now, from that point, things go south for him. But at that moment, things were going really well. This, the spirit here descending on Jesus as a dove is an indication that, again, new creation, like with Noah in the flood, that heaven has come to earth in the sun through the spirit, that new creation has shown up with this new Adam just as it had with Noah. So for good reason, then, 1 Peter 3 refers to Noah's flood as a baptism. And 2 Peter 3 compares Noah's flood to the new creation and in turn judgment on this present evil age that is accomplished through Christ and his word. But whereas every new Adam has failed, so just think of Seth, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, this new Adam, this son of God who stands for Israel is beloved by God and God is well pleased by him. So this, this Noah will not be saved from the flood. This Noah will not be saved from the flood. He will be crushed by it. He will bring about peace with God, 
removing the boundary between the Holy of Holies through his life, death, and resurrection, and in turn, like Noah's Ark, he will bring his people safely through the judgment, through the waters, establishing them in a redeemed and glorified creation. John mentioned earlier in chapter 3 that the Messiah would baptize, himself would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the water part of, of baptism, we get because we've, we've seen it all our life. And clearly, the Spirit is at work in this moment, too. We see it specifically, all that. But what about the fire? What about the fire part? Well, the way Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 12 indicates that he saw his cross as a kind of baptism, too. Here's what he says. I came to cast fire on the earth. That's judgment language, by the way. And would that it were already kindled, as in let that, that fire burn. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So in other words, Jesus sees his crucifixion as a baptism in the fiery judgment of God. That's how he sees it. Jesus' ministry then begins and it ends with baptism. And that baptism is a baptism in the water and the spirit, as we see here in Luke 3, and with fire, as we will see in Luke 23. So like in the days of Noah, God will judge his creation and humanity's role within creation, and he will do so with righteousness. God is not capricious, and he does not take pleasure with the destruction of the wicked. Even so, like with the flood, a way of escape is actually offered to those who want it. Or like with Lot at Sodom and Gomorrah, a way to escape the fiery judgment of God. As John says earlier in chapter 3, the axe is already laid at the roots of the tree for this generation of Israel. So Jesus brings both life and he brings death. Both resurrection and judgment. You can't have one or the other. It's both. That's Jesus' own testimony. Even so, God is not without patience. No, he, he's unbelievably kind and patient. And as Paul says, he even gives food and water and joy and laughter to those who hate him. So there, there's no God like our God. And, and all the other false gods, they demand our lives and give us nothing in return. Our God offers his life for us and gives us life forever with him in return. Okay, so we've seen then what John's baptism is about and how it's different from what Je Jesus would do and what it meant for Jesus himself to be baptized with water, the spirit, and the fire. But what does it mean to be baptized by Jesus? Because that's what John is actually looking forward to is the baptism of Jesus. That's why he wanted it. Okay, so we become children of Abraham Think through the history of Israel here. We become the children of Abraham not through the baptism of the flood, like Noah, or the baptism of the Red Sea crossing, like the Exodus. Paul refers to that as a baptism. Or the baptism of the crossing of the Jordan River. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which itself is a, is a baptism of water, spirit, and fire. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2 to give you an idea of where we get some of this thinking. Paul says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's Jeremiah 31 language. By putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That could be a whole nother sermon, just how deep that passage goes and the significance of the cross of Christ. But Paul is being quite literal when he says we were crucified with him. We were crucified with him and will be raised like him too. That's a crucial part of the meaning of baptism. What was the fire of judgment for Jesus in his crucifixion is now purifying fire for us. And that's exactly what we see with the tongues of fire at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The holiness of God, like you see at the burning bush in Exodus 3, has now descended and has become in us. And we enjoy his communion and his presence. So Christian baptism, as opposed to, say, John's baptism, is not merely water, but includes the spirit and includes fire. This is why in Acts, those baptized... Uh, with John's baptism only, are rebaptized in Christ. It's also why there is only one baptism. Baptism is not merely a personal confession of faith that includes water. No, it is God's work in us, marking us off as a people in communion with Him through the Spirit and who are being purified by fire. And so, like how the world was remade at Noah's flood, so now has the world been remade in Jesus. The old order is gone. It's why Jesus spends so much time warning about the coming destruction of the old order and the temple in Jerusalem. And in its place, his people have become the temple. That's a new order. And in turn, your life is caught up in his life. His life is the pattern for your life now. Well, like with Noah's flood and how water can either be life-saving, a life-saving baptism, or, or bring judgment and death, so too is Jesus' cross. So he either bears your sin in the fire of judgment, or you will bear it yourself. It's why I love singing the words from Isaiah 43, and I have to apologize. I don't know why I cut off verses 3 and 4 of how firm a foundation, but these words are in verse 3, and I, I regret not having us sing it this morning. This is Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You're supposed to look back to Noah and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River and put your life there. You're supposed to see that how God is faithful with them. He is faithful with you too. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, 
I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. So like Noah, right, or, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not be judged by God. No, we enjoy his grace and mercy. We pass through the waters in the fire, and what is death for others is baptism and purification for us. But what is so often missed by Christians is that we experience both the washing of our sins, we call that justification by faith alone, the indwelling of the Spirit, but also that fire, that fire for, the, for our good and for our purification. It's like what Hebrews 12 says. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and this is right after Hebrews 11, that's recounting the Old Testament, essentially. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means our faith is on him. He did it. Who for the joy that was set before him, that's life with God, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Before I read that, he's not saying that what you're going through is not hard. It may be excruciating, but you didn't take the judgment of God. Someone else took that. We're to look to him who has endured so much and see our lives caught up in his. That's what he's saying. But this is what he says. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when removed, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the basic point is, is that if you belong to God, if you are his child, he'll move you closer to him and farther away from your sin. It's why when you meet a mature believer, there is no hint of pride in that person. No, she's humble. She doesn't think she's worthless. That's, that's, that's not humility. That's false humility. She doesn't think she's worthless. She sees the surpassing worth of her God. She sees her sin more clearly. And she knows, like, like when Isaiah found himself in the throne room of God, that without redemption, without an ark in the flood, she has no life. And so this fire is a good thing. It's a good thing, though it obviously doesn't always feel that way. Discipline is something we grow into. Discipline is something we come to love. Modern culture hates it. It hates it. But the people of God should learn to love it. Discipline is a sign that God actually loves us because as every good parent knows, if you love your children, you will not give in to whatever whim or desire they have. You won't let them play in traffic or do whatever their heart's desire is. That kills them. 
No, you discipline them until they not only can choose the good for themselves, they want to choose it. So we should want to grow in our faith and our hope and love. We should want to shrug off the old man and the ways of the world. And even if we were, like say Noah, the lone holdout for God in a world of intense wickedness, which had to include intense pleasure, we would rather have God than gain the world. Well, may that be true of us. And I know that God absolutely can make it happen. Let's seek him in prayer and ask him to do that very thing. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us life in your Son, that he is the ark that brings us through our death and will bring us into life, that he will resurrect us and put us on dry land just as you did for Noah. We thank you for this grace and this mercy, and we thank you that you don't leave us at that. So I pray for us that you would grow us in discipline, that you would grow us in maturity, that you would grow our hearts, that we'd not only recognize what is good and right, but that we would want to do it because it comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.